Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Global Sports Conversations. Today I'm joined by Sean Cottrell, the founder of Law in Sport, um, and we're going to talk about the relationship between sport, law and sports diplomacy. So Sean, we've known each other for a little while now, but I'm wondering if you could give us a brief recap on what you consider sports law to be in a nutshell. I'll try my best. So in short, um, you have the law that exists outside of sport, and some would argue that you, there's no such thing as sports law, and it's just the law as applied to sport. From a sports law perspective, the purists, who are lawyers who've been working in the, for sports clients or working in the sports sector for a long time, particularly on issues relating to disputes, so whether that's on the field disputes around red cards in football, um, anti-doping violations, uh, um, other misconduct charges. They would argue that um, there's a thing called Lex Sportiva, and this is a particular body of sports law. And that really relates to the disputes resolution mechanisms that sports organisations have and the courts which they use, such as the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Is that is that succinct enough? <laughs> Do you want me to expand on that further? What I think um, I'd like to ask, though, is in between this sort of the law of the land, um, wherever, uh, wherever, wherever any of us uh, exist, and the law of sport, how have they come to you know, evolve together? To what extent is sport seen as different within the law? Many people will be familiar with like the Bosman ruling or the exemptions that sport has um, attained through the IOC within uh, the prominence that it's given within organisations like the United Nations or the European Union. How has sport been able to make that uh, case on a legal basis? So, first of all, you have to you know, go back in history really to understand where sports come from to give you an idea of how uh, the relationship between law and sport has developed. So uh, the, the, I, I kind of break it down just for conceptual purposes into four uh, areas, three of which are grouped up. But one is the, you know, sport as a for-profit enterprise. Normally people may refer to this as the franchise model in the US where the there's no real governing body as such. The governing body people who oversee the sport and administer the sport are the owners of the teams, essentially. And they come together as a collective and they administer sport on the basis that they want to make as much profit as possible. Now, it's not to say they don't do social good and it has all the other benefits that sports has, but their, their main motivation is, is that. Then if we come back uh, to sort of the, the sort of Olympic movement, really, you've got essentially sport for the rich elite, so the polo the uh, of old athletics, when it first started, the only people who could afford and had the time and luxury to, to participate in exercise, or say so, participate in sport and exercise, was the rich elite. And so you have a body of, of sports organisations which have got a, a steep history um, for over hundreds, hundreds of years developed from there. And then you have the industrial revolution where the owners of um, factories recognised that if they were to give recreational ground to their workers and get them to participate and exercise and and do different activities they would be more uh, healthy and fit 
and therefore uh, that's uh, strongly steeped to sort of local roots. You know, you've got the, the, the birth of football clubs and rugby clubs uh, from those roots. And then you have um, a slightly different approach, but interrelated, uh, which was the the more the, the sort of socialist governments, the communist type of approach to um, uh, sport, where it was sport run by the government, organized by the government, um, they chose who the athletes were, they chose which games uh, or activities they participated in, and it was largely around um, you know, uh, national identity uh, and profile. And I'm sure that you've already touched on this in much more uh, in-depth and sophisticated manner than I am now, so I'm just loosely framing it. Those The last three really stem from the, what was really amateur sport. So rather than the, the, the franchise model where you, you clearly have professional sport and it was professional from the start, the other three were amateur sport. And obviously as sports evolved, um, the sport has, has professionalized. The Olympic movement obviously has allowed professionals uh, to compete in their sports now, have done for some time. Uh, the, to be blunt, it's really about a market developing. Government uh, only really cares about intervening in an activity if it has some sort of social impact or it has some economic impact and that's the same in sports so if we look at sport developing as a market and obviously we've seen huge amounts of money going to uh, football in particular but the olympic movement uh, through media rights to sell of access to watch the sports and distribute those sports um uh, the law has got more keenly interested so we have the development of such as issues around safeguarding um, you know, protecting the, the welfare of individuals and the duty of care owed to individuals that has gone along and sport at various times sport has, 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 has touched on that and it, 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 over, it, it applies to sport anyway. Um, but that's evolved as sport has become more significant on a global scale, whether it's from a health perspective an education perspective or from an economics perspective. And so that's what we've seen develop on the back of that. You have to understand that, well, it's helpful to understand that sport has got the people who participated in sport, who administer sport, are often people who had the, either the time or just had the passion and interest to do it. And the same applies in sports. One of the top sports lawyers in the world is um, the right honourable Michael Beloff QC, who's an outstanding lawyer in his own right, but one of the world's leading sports lawyers. And he describes in a, I've done a podcast on this that you could listen to if you so wish on the Law and Sport podcast. He describes how he first started to advise sports clients as a favor because he was an athlete in athletics and he, uh, he you know, just did a favor for someone and realized that they didn't have, actually have any lawyers advising them. That's because you generally need to be a sophisticated purchaser of legal services to understand how to, to use lawyers. That has now evolved as the organizations have professionalized, as governance standard in in the UK in particular, but internationally has improved as more money is at stake, as the stakeholders you're engaging with uh, become more sophisticated, as government grants increase, as as money going into it increases. The, the, the need for lawyers and having clear um, rights to find either for the individual or for the organization and to have dispute resolution mechanisms to deal with any disputes, to have good governance standards has increased the um, significance of, 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 and I would say rather than use the term sports lawyers, I, I prefer, um, or use the term sports lawyers, I say the better way to understand really what's been going on is to say, what is the role of lawyers? And if you track the role of lawyers over the last 
whether it's 50 years, um, but particularly the last 20 years, it's rapidly evolved. And so you've had lawyers who traditionally sat outside of sports organizations who would advise their clients who are the sports organizations or the athletes. And now we have um, big teams of lawyers. I think FIFA have got well over 50 lawyers there. I think somewhere in the region of 100 and plus lawyers at FIFA. Um, Man United have got well over, I think, like sort of eight lawyers. You, you know, we've seen this evolution where these organisations, as we've seen in other sectors, they bring their own in-house uh, legal team uh, together to try to advise them internally, and then they go out to external advice for, uh, for sophisticated or what we would call heavy load work, so big international transactions, big litigation, so big disputes that they're arguing. So does that answer the question, Simon? Yeah. Th- thanks very much, So In that sense, to what extent is sports law or those practicing law as applied to sport something distinct where does it sit within the you know broader legal framework and you know within this country that being the uk and internationally we know that international law is not uh you know is a consensual affair so how can we make you know as much of this what you've spoken about affects international sport so how do we reconcile those forces in that sense well it's, it's a tricky one um is the honest answer so the you hear this term bounded about all the time the specificity of sport so there's an argument particularly from the the player union movement that the sport shouldn't be classified as being having any real specificity and that the uh, athletes or the employees should be um just considered employees as in any other sector and so there's this tension and continual dialogue uh, that is taking place um, across the world. Now, there are particular nuances, much like in maritime law, in healthcare, in all these other areas where there's this particular specialisms of law. Undoubtedly, the sports market is such, particularly with um, issues around uh, anti-doping, match fixing, and others. Whilst I would argue that they're all interrelated in terms of their structure, there are very specific issues at hand. And so having a specialism, which is an industry knowledge, a specific knowledge of um, the issues at hand, um, is increasing. The need to do that and having greater sophistication is increasing. And therefore, this body of sports law as such, having people understand the sector, I think that there is... um, is more readily accepted. In some places around the world, there's still, let's say, a snobbery around uh, acting for sports clients. They don't consider sport as warranting as or sports law as a, as a separate thing. And we saw that here domestically. We saw it in the US. Um, we've seen it in other areas. But obviously, as the sector grows, as sports grows, then that sort of snobbery dies away. And that's largely attributed to the amount of money that lawyers can make, uh, to, be, to be quite blunt about it, from the sector. When they start getting paid more by sports clients, then they suddenly uh, are more open to recognising that there's a, uh, a particular body of law. But in terms of where does it sit? So in the past, the courts of uh, domestically, for example, have said, look, we don't want to intervene on certain issues, right? It's not our, you know, the courts are overloaded anyway, let's be clear. And there's a fantastic book, if you're interested, I did a podcast with uh, uh, Lord Dyson, who was one of our most senior judges, um, who was arbitrated over the Saracens case and he, in his book, uh, a judge's journey he describes if you if anyone interested in this it's a great read anyway um it's got a lot to it but if you want to know about how 
our judiciary work in the UK, I'd thoroughly recommend it. It's a, it's a fantastic book. And he talks about the just dealing with the pure workload that the courts have got. And so you've got to think that the, both the, from a government, government perspective and from a court's perspective, they don't want to get bogged down with stuff where um, it'd be better dealt with for a process called arbitration or a process called mediation, which is essentially the parties agree to go to a body to settle their dispute. It's meant to be more cost-effective, efficient, um, and particularly in the unusual international context where so many people are bound internationally, um, something like the Court of Arbitration for Sport and having a harmonization of rules and um, process and therefore independence, ideally, uh, you know, and, and key elements of rule of law, which is important uh, for, for issues of fairness, for just, um, uh, for justice. Uh, there is um, an appetite, they say, to recognise this as a distinct area. Now, I should also add to this, in certain countries around the world, they have a specific sports laws enacted to cover how sports organizations are run how they are administered uh how they're funded etc 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 therefore it's a bit of a moot point right you can just go around the houses arguing whether there is such a thing as sports law or not um the reality is uh does sport have legal frameworks and legal requirements should um they be subject to the same um uh, legal system that everyone else is and the, the answer is in most cases is yes however in competition law for example they said that if there's an economic activity competition law will apply it the european commission said this however they do make exemptions like they do in other areas as well because if there is a if it's proportionate to a legitimate objective and so if the objective is to for example, with issues around state aid and funding of the development of infrastructure, such as stadium and training facilities, if there is uh, a great social demand for it, need for it, and a good justification, then it will be uh, permitted. So the answer is, in short, it's pretty tricky um, worldwide. But um, you know, because even in arbitration, there's debates around uh, uh, around this applicability and, and what we call jurisprudence of the body of law that applies to it. Um, but I think generally what we're seeing now is as well on the, uh, to add something further to complicate the issue, human rights um, traditionally hasn't been applied much to law, to, sorry, to sport. Well, recently there's been, been a flurry of cases, uh, one from Turkey, one, um, one was um, the Petstein Mutu case. In which they're saying that human rights applies to uh, sports cases and particularly uh, disputes and there needs to be um, independence in the in the disciplinary process in, in the, the people who adjudicate so say for example an, a football player gets sanctioned for breaching some regulations that he goes to a to a body those body that body should be particularly on appeal should be independent and if they're not it's an infringement of their of his human rights like we saw in Petstein and Mutu that the people should have the right to um, request a public hearing which is also another thing uh, that, that is really because of all the affected parties. And in my interview with Lord Dyson, he talked about the um, the need and uh, the requirement that that is he, that the decisions of any dispute should be made public. And previously in arbitration, the basis would be that the parties would have to agree to a player or an agent under the the club or the federation or or WADA, for example, would have to agree for that decision to be published. 
well, there's a real shift at the moment. So now you've got, I said, this wider body of law applying to to to, to sport, and so that again decreasing this this call it the specificity of sport. But even on the point of specificity of sport, it has very different meanings depending where you are. So again, the European Commission uses it very intentionally. And they're talking from some of the stuff that you guys have already covered, I believe, on, on sort of sport development, sport for development and development for sport. Um, I know they said that, that I've been informed by you, Simon, and, and your colleagues around the, the, the debates that stem around that. Um, so you will know full well that there's, you know, from the European Commission perspective, they care about um, uh, and the European Union, they care about uh, European culture. Uh, education, healthcare, and, and those type of issues, and then the competitive element of sport becomes tertiary to those. Mm. I think it's interesting what you made there, the link to human rights and how that impacts the law, uh, both nationally and you know across different uh, national jurisdictions. You're talking about issues of safeguarding, um, modern trafficking. There's a lot there that seem that would seem to um, run up against different interpretations of law i wonder if you could speak a little bit about those you know self safeguarding well-being yep. um, and human traffic yes so 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 again the, the reason why i described the evolution of sport let's call it is because that informs then how people perceive sport so here if we're talking about premier league football as an example or football generally people would normally associate that with the 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 top end of football they normally associate loads of money they associate more sophisticated executives in theory at least uh involved in it and very detailed and complex governance structures and disciplinary processes however in various parts of the world sport is still considered amateur and that people should participate in sport uh uh, should just be grateful that someone's organizing it and it's about the, this sort of either higher level of ethics or you know some of the uh, uh, um, Olympic principles and therefore they should be grateful for whatever is done um, and there's a resistance let's say to professionalize and so when we're looking at from an international context such as uh, human rights people take very different views in terms of how human well you know just in human rights anyway and how they should apply but particularly around the issues of safeguarding, I've been to talks, for example, with football clubs where they talk about, uh, we're talking about um, protection of minors, so safeguarding under under 18-year-olds. Uh, and they are talking about them as a commodity, right? We are, we want to be able to, to be able to make sure we can acquire 14-year-olds, for example. We want to be able to move them freely. Now, counter to that is the work that UNICEF have been doing to say that, um, say, for example, in, with FIFA, they're changing their... Um, transfer of minors regulations so the, the regulations around the movement of, of under 18 year olds because they've actually prohibited um, young people moving to get in uh, for, for, for their career in football to get their education paid for their accommodation paid for everything else where in any other sector such as the music uh, music sector or the, the, the arts they say theater or any other science they would you'll be able to get these scholarships you'll be able to move freely well that had been previously prohibited by fifa because they felt that it was anti-competitive to allow that and it would harm uh various countries domestic football that's now being reviewed um you know to see whether or not and there's a, a ongoing work by the guys at uh, i think by team at loughborough and unicef on this um, and I think they've done a provisional report already uh, looking at this um, to, to see where what is really, um, again, proportionate and fair. And does it uh, what is the legitimate objective of these regulations 
are they actually achieving what they set out to achieve and is that actually you know are they is the motivation behind them actually a good one and so you're balancing up depending where you're in the world you know different viewpoints safeguarding in some parts of the world is not really considered a thing anyway you know in fact if you were to report an issue around safeguarding you may be as i found out from the team at unicef you know you may be subject to criminal um prosecution yourself for reporting something so you have to be very careful so i think fifa have actually done some great work on this which i don't think yet has has become truly pervasive in the sports law arena which is rather than talk about it as safeguarding they've reframed it as guardians and being guardians of sport and i love this because i think it has greater international appeal and that is one of the other problems with, with, with law you have to be very specific about the words that you use and how it applies in each jurisdiction uh, and that can become uh, tricky and that's where obviously and i would say this of course i would on this podcast or recording that um you know you need the people with great diplomatic skills to make sure that um you get the buy-in from the various countries stakeholders and if anything that's you know the wada code the introduction of the world anti-doping agency was a masterful piece i think of of, of the diplomacy and a great example where um uh diplomacy and law meet and intertwine yeah, i wonder if we could um, move on a little bit to what extent does the law as applies to sport um have a, a role in in governance within sport what are the um sort of um relationships that you've seen play out between those the the governance and the law of sport yeah so so i think Again, this is why I talk about the law more broadly rather than the law of sport, because if you look at, um, say, for example, the code for UK code for sport governance, um, we are talking about just there was a lot of research that was done there um, by UK Sport and Sport England. Um, and they researched all these other sectors, right? These were from corporate law perspective. What, what do we know? How is corporate law uh, introduce and how is law evolved anyway law often evolves when there's been a crisis or there's been a problem that needs to be fixed and so from a corporate perspective having good governance was important because corporations if they weren't couldn't be trusted to run properly and effectively they could have quite significant ramifications if they went wrong for uh, not only for the economy as a whole but for individuals this is the same in sport and we've seen this greater push towards good governance now if you're interested in the development of the sector then you shouldn't be opposed to good governance now lawyers um one of the reasons why they're used uh good lawyers anyway um is because of their objectivity because of the fact they're interpreting um you know where the right balance is what's going to be effective and proportionate for that organization to use because there's no point having a you know this say uh having a local football club having uh governance practices and procedures that are um be to be expected of a FTSE 100 company right heavily regulated uh market where they've got all these responsibilities to, re to report that's going to grind the, the organization to a halt so introducing that best practice having clarity of thought um you know having um uh yeah people document and these there's some of these um i think when we were speaking last time simon you, you alluded to this some of the wider skill set that lawyers have developed through their general practice is something that ha can benefit and has benefited um the sports sector however you can over lawyer so so uh, whilst it can inform good governance so things like independence separation of powers so for example you don't have someone who sits on the executive 
of a of a let's say the FA decide the case, right? You can't have the, the judge jury. You don't want a judge jury and executioner. You you want uh, fundamental principles of separation of powers to be applied, uh, both for the organisation perspective to safeguard any future litigation, but also for the individual perspective. These type of principles um, uh, have informed absolutely, and now we have uh, you know what is becoming as again as they become uh, more sophisticated, the risk management processes and how risk management is is run. So understanding what the law is currently, where it's going to go, when someone's making a decision, have they you know, declared conflicts of interest, um, you know, that could cause a problem in the future. Have they addressed all, uh, you know, have they got a good understanding of the issues? Say, for example, if we look at the safeguarding issues in football 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they weren't, it looks like anyway, from what I can see, that, that, that they probably weren't taking good legal advice on, on, on a lot of these issues. They would just thought, oh, we'll sweep it under the carpet. Let's put the blame on the on the, on a player who's been abused. Right, let's do it that way. It's not, you know, uh, they didn't, looks like in some instances, they didn't apply due process. And therefore, this is where having a good in house team, but also having external advisors, they will ensure that those processes are run properly um, and effectively. Uh, so, does that does that answer the question? Yeah, I think the. Sorry, I'll keep, I'll keep, keep saying that just from the perspective of the, I, I, I could ramble on for a long time about these issues because it is a complex issue. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, sharing the complexity of it is one of the features that, you know, we want to get across to the to our students who are going to be listening to this and colleagues. It really does speak to the interconnectivity of the way that the world of human rights, the world of sport, the world of law, the world of finance all speak to each other and come together. And I wonder, it, it sort of perhaps a, a more philosophical dimension to it. I wonder if there's something... Sorry, Sean. I was just going to say one thing to add, actually, that, that to give another. Sorry, you can you can do with it what you want. You can delete it if you if you need to. But one other there is that I think that is also interesting to know. Say, for example, in China, China don't have, and in parts of Africa, they don't really have what we call intellectual property law. They do have it, but it's not particularly robust. It particularly where it's weak is protecting um, sports events from uh, from piracy so what do we know about sport one of the ways sports commercializes through is to sell of broadcast right so in that instance where there's under development of the national law the sports organizations are collectively getting together and we've seen this here to lobby the government to try to introduce laws that protects them so just to see it from a different perspective so it's not only just the top down way it's the bottom up right and we saw this in football as well with the uh, you know football stadium and all-seater stadiums and and so forth. So it's a uh, again. This is why I'm such a, a fan of the model of the that you, you described before of diplomacy, because I think that really that whole thing about representation, negotiation, communication is is an important part of how law develops. Excellent. I think that really, yeah, that, that, that's a really valuable point. The, the, the philosophical dimension I wanted to just touch on was the extent to which ethics underpin the world of sport is something we've discussed but the role of ethics in law how has that sort of manifest itself in the application to sports law well oh. <laughs> that's okay. a tricky one uh, yeah. for the, let me let me let me let me let me try and address it so as you know ethics is impacted and how you view ethics is impacted by the culture Therefore, like any other part 
of the world or any other sector, how people view legal ethics uh, differs greatly to different parts of the world. So, for example, in certain parts of the world, they don't think the separation of powers, they don't think, uh, you know, so just take football as an example. There are lawyers who act for the player, the club, the um, the agent, act for all parties involved. Now, in theory, if you uh, hold to our view, the, the, the British view, um, of good principles of rule of law, you would say that that is almost incompatible with best practice. And ethically, at least, you would say, maybe this raises some interesting questions. Can I really produce the best advice for all parties in a commercial negotiation if I'm acting for everyone and getting paid by everyone? Whilst most people, again, will tell you publicly that they uh, would agree that they shouldn't, uh, privately, um, people do. And so, again, what people say publicly in public forums and what they do in practice. And to be honest with you, the standards of ethics in law differs greatly. I think, you know, inherently, most people want to try and do uh, do the right thing. I think, however, the customs and norms of a sector, and we've seen this in football, you know, with FIFA, you, when they used to, thankfully, they've gone through just a substantial reform and changed many of their processes. But before, they used to reimburse people with brown envelopes, for example, for travel expenses. And... Yeah, on the face of it, most lawyers in the UK would say that's a very terrible idea. You shouldn't, you absolutely should not be doing that. The cultural norm of the sector was like, hey, we do, we all do this, right? So what's wrong with it? There's no, you know, we don't, we're not trying to do anything bad. And then obviously that becomes susceptible to manipulation. So I think the questions of ethics and law, I think it's a challenging topic anyway within itself. But, it, you know, I, th I find it very hard to talk about it um, holistically when it, it depends on the culture of the... Uh, and the, and the education and the experiences of each um, jurisdiction. Mm. So is there something uh, around the national jurisdictions which determine and apply and adapt and change laws and the international environment in which sport exists? Sport has been held up as a, an icon of globalisation. We see athletes travelling from you know, all over the world to compete in, you know, national and international competitions. We see media conglomerates from all over the world, you know, taking advantage and, and broadcasting uh, sports that, you know, we wouldn't have had exposure to in beyond those national uh, jurisdictions. Is there some uh, function that uh, sport can help, um, you know, encourage, you know, good legal frameworks, good legal because of its inherently globalized qualities um at least up until absolutely 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 i do, i think you know i always <clears throat> say to people as an example of where um things could go and, and are going and and will continue to i think is that when i was to work in law firms law firms did not care at all when I, I used to work for some of the top international law firms, they did not care about the environment like most people didn't. I'm talking about 20 years ago or so. They really didn't care. However, the carbon footprint movement came and said, hey, you know what? If you recycle paper and use recycled paper, it'll probably save you about £100,000 a year in your in your office, it, just in one office in London. So what happened the next week, pretty much? We all got recycling bins. And they started using recycled paper. Then they said, hey, if you use a software called Night Watchman 
we'll turn your PCs off. If you're inactive for, I think, for an hour after 6 p.m., we'll turn it off. That will save you about another 100000 on your energy bill. All of a sudden, the, the three or four law firms that I worked at over a period became carbon neutral and were very happy to budge it up. And so the economic impact is often one that, that should be considered when we're talking about the sports context. Not only you know, are there political and um, you know, sport like any other, and I call it an art form, uh, appeals to people's hearts and, uh, and souls, right? You know, if you see beautiful sport or sport played beautifully, it, like any other performance, it, 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 people can see it, I think, and, and, and really enjoy it. That in itself can be pervasive, uh, particularly if someone's a sports fan and someone who's a sports fan who's in position of power. However, just the economic impact and influence that sport can have now, and at least from a PR perspective, at least, but from an economic perspective in terms of job creation, getting people to a destination, becoming a talker point. And if we look at the, the, the policies of some of the Middle Eastern states in terms of development in sport, you know, the bang for the buck that they get in terms of profile from, uh, you know, the amount of influence they get from the amount of money invested uh, is significant compared to what they would get if they were investing in oil and gas or some, some other means. So from that perspective, because of that, it, it, and because of people competing at an international level, uh, inevitably you're going to move to a point where you're going to need to improve your governance standards, you're going to need to improve your structures because it will be impossible for you to operate effectively without doing that. So when we look at the long-term play of human rights, for example, the human rights movement has become very um, effective, I think, and you could argue about how affected the, you know, they could be more stringent. But given the global uh, framework they operate within and the, the lack of real leverage that they have <coughs> over nation states, <clears throat> the benefit that sport can have in this context to start a dialogue, to be influential. So, you know, on again, with uh, some, this is using the Middle East as an example just because they're investing so much in sport and they've been a, a huge talking point. Uh you know, you can start a negotiation around, okay, you would like to host an event or you need to meet such as FIFA or the IOC, you need to meet minimum criteria. You have to respect human rights. And, you know, and Brendan Schwab from the World Players Association, it's on YouTube, you can freely access it. If you go to Law and Sport YouTube channel, we've got um, a conversation with him and, he, uh, and uh, some other colleagues from the, from the sector talking about um, this issue. And the, the reality is that you can start a dialogue that would be, difficult to approach if it wasn't for the motivation of hosting uh, a mega sports event. And so in, in that regards, that's where sport and sports law, a framework in which we all agree minimum standards in which sports should be run by, uh, governed by, and be accountable can be very effective. I think that's really interesting to think about how you can um, take that sort of dimension forward and think about where those points of connection are i wonder if there's one sort of quality or, or dimension and, and one group of stakeholders is perhaps the best way to think of it that we haven't really mentioned and that you know in many conversations you know around sport are overlooked and that's the athletes you'll have seen in recent times the, the rise of global athlete and you know the athlete's voice 
um, given prominence by some high profile athletes, you know, LeBron James uh, talking about Black Lives Matter, you know, the Colin Kaepernick um, case in that regard, you know, yes, commercialized within you know, that arrangement with Nike, but nonetheless, the prominence of athletes in responding to issues um, seen in the, the COVID-19 crisis particularly. What role does the athlete have here? What's the relationship from, to your mind, of the athlete's viewpoint? So uh, if you say, for example, look at the US, just to do with that point um, discreetly, the US have got labor law in place. So that's labor law that applies to any other sector that applies, which subject to um, the organization and um, coordination of athletes in the United States 50 plus years ago, Major League Baseball being the big driver behind that, Marvin Miller in particular, I believe. Um, that caused uh, the, or allowed players to unionize, which gave them certain rights. I think if we fast track to where we are now, and in the past there's been this sort of autocratic approach to sport, which again comes from the evolution of where sport came from, right, and how it's evolved over the last 50 years or so, that is very much, you know, if you're an athlete, you should be grateful for the opportunity to participate to the point where it's been commercialized and then the conversation moves to, well, how much should I be remunerated? Inevitably, if your prize asset which is the athletes of not being treated well, not being respected well, <clears throat> they're not going to be the best brand advocates for you. They're not going to be <clears throat> aligned with your objectives. <clears throat> so, excuse me. So, what does that lead to? It lead, at some point, it's going to lead to a dispute. It will lead to litigation. You want to avoid that at all costs. So, what we've seen in the in the United States, for example, has been we had a period of thirty years, or whatever, quite a lot of. Um, contention between the unions and the and the and the leagues and there's some now we've got the same with women's football in the US and we'll no doubt we'll see the same thing happen where the women's um teams are not being given the respect uh or not being or it's been argued there let's just say that they're not being given the respect um that they deserve and not being remunerated in the or treated as equals to their male counterparts so with that and we are going to see inevitably that the, if you, like in any organization, want to be effective, you need to get your employees, you need to get your stakeholders to be really engaged. The, the, in, the, in the, for example, the Premier League, the Premier League, we have a correct collective bargaining process with the PFA, with the Premier League, with the FA, and they agree a certain structure towards players' contracts. But when you have that situation arise, you have the athletes, the players, who are much more engaged in every process that you you orchestrate. So in that process, for example, the Premier League clubs can't use um, an image of an individual player uh, for promotional purposes. They have to have three players in a, in a picture, for example, um, if they're using it for, for sponsorship purposes. But there's certain provisions that are there to protect the rights of the athletes so the athlete can have their own individual uh, sponsorship agreements. I see this inevitably. And if you look at where where sports governance is concerned to have the um, key stakeholder truly represented and have a voice a meaningful voice have an impact have a vote i think uh, becomes critical to the success because you need you know, no one should have absolute power and i think if you have an executive that have absolute power and don't get me wrong at some points particularly if you're a um, 
You need to make swift decisions very quickly. Sometimes it can be very effective, particularly if you're a small organization, not to have to consult with everyone. However, if you're a bigger organization, if you're one of the major league sports, or any sport, you're better off getting your athletes on board uh, with whatever you're trying to do because they will make everything much easier and much smoother. So I think the athlete voice through the player unions in particular, and again, we've got a great article by Bram Dabshak from the uh, Australia, who's a leading uh, union lawyer for, for, for players around the world. He uh, describes how we've seen in every other sector a decrease in unionization, but in the sports sector, we've seen an increase in unionization, which is just fascinating. So I think that will continue. I think, again, if you, you know, it's, it's pretty much 101 good governance. You know, what do you need? You need, a, you know, a board, you need independent directors, you need, um, uh, you know, skill based boards. They need to be add something to the to, to, to board decisions. And you need stakeholder, true stakeholder representation. I think inevitably we're moving that way. However, because of the cultural impact, there's been a narrative that athletes don't care, athletes aren't sophisticated enough. I would argue that it's often the language that's used and the arrogance of the both the legal profession, but also the, the executives in sport that the athletes wouldn't understand. Um, and there's been a lack of a, you know, sort of accountability. I think that 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 is significantly shifting and has been has been for some time. Overlaid, I should say, so with technology and and you know now you can get access to more information and and part and you know not to try and be humble, but in part because of law in sport because we we took out of the hands of many people what was only exclusive content that people don't have access to and we made it public. Well, I think that's you know it is worth you know pausing on your good work and you know what law in sport has done in being the sort of go to um, place yourself individually, but. The, the website and the resources that are there and I would encourage anyone to go to along to www.lawinsport.com for you know more of a fix on this um, dimension I wonder also but on that point so 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 Simon on that point though the bit that we were talking about this yesterday about how important it is to you know you were saying it's time of crisis to to engage your stakeholders so for those that don't know about law and sport the only reason why it works is because there's a lot of great people who are some of the world's leading sports lawyers academics such as yourself simon uh athletes who agree with our approach right and in fact there's more of us in the world than there were the the few who wanted to withhold the problem is they had most of the information and power at the time and that's significantly changed and we've seen you know a real shifting in a culture maybe uh sorry, culture maybe it's a generational thing i'm not sure but you know to, to be clear the, the the benefit of law in sport is not me as an individual i'm just a catalyst for bringing uh, and have been and my colleagues have been um who are amazing of bringing people together and that's all we've been able to do and like i said there's more of us than there are people who want to withhold the information well i think that's you know i, I think that that sharing experience is something that we really want to um you know is, is an opportunity here I did just want to dwell on that, the point that you made around why sport is unionising at the time that other factors, sections of society have, you know, unions have felt, found it more and more difficult. I think that is an interesting uh, question, one for, you know, labour uh, scholars and lawyers. It's something that, you know, does run, you know, does add to the sort of specificity of sport, you know, the the fact that there's that that common experience i wonder then if there's there's something to just dwell on sean about the applicability of law and sport at a more local level we've talked about the international dimension there's something that law you know can contribute to you know the sport that 
you know, many of us are familiar with, you know, whether it's taking our children to a swimming lesson or to a you know, football match on a Saturday afternoon. And then particularly perhaps with regard to school sport, is there some notion there of how the good practice and identification of sport law can help in that way? Oh, absolutely. So one of the, I'm interested in a thing, well, I was, I was doing a meditation uh, program a while ago called the map I use called Calm, but there's other ones like Headspace and others. And one of the things that was really interesting about that was that um, there was a session on a thing called fractals and they were talking about fractals. I've never heard of fractals before, but basically um, it's the same pattern repeats at different different levels of scale basically so if you go to a coastline you go down to the micro and you expand all the way up up as high as you can go you'll see the same pattern repeat at different levels well i, I believe that's the same in law that that you whilst you've got the cultural aspects that influence and and uh, uh the and the heritage that influence the legal systems in essence a uh, basic principle rule of law is that everyone should be able to understand the rules and regulations that govern their behavior so why should it not be the case that having a basic good framework of governance should, uh, why could that not be applicable to a sports organisation at a grassroots level, to a to a to a to a school, to others? I think in the past there's been too much specificity where they said, "Oh, it won't apply to us because we're different." Well, I don't, I don't, I really don't buy into that argument. I think the the fundamental frameworks are the same, and then you tailor them to the particular circumstances. As an example, um, we did uh, some work with a, a gentleman by the name of John Walters, who was formerly at a law firm called Charles Russell Speechlease, and now um, on a law firm called Northridge, both of which are, are two top sports firms. And he'd done some work with us on uh, along uh, after being asked to by Joy Topman, who is um, at the time was at the Sport Recreation Alliance. It was called the CCPR, I think, in those days. And she asked us if we could just do a guide for people for grassroots sports clubs in order to how to incorporate. And, uh, and, and the reason why they asked us to do that was that a lot of these football clubs, rugby clubs, cricket clubs, tennis clubs, etc., were essentially just membership associations, informal associations in which the individual members could be liable for a lawsuit if something was to go wrong. So someone injures themselves in, in the ground and we had this issue. I saw one where there was a 90 year old trustee essentially of this membership association who was going to be liable uh, and then it re really wasn't functioning. It was just there in name uh, because someone fell over and they were bringing an action against them because uh, they hurt themselves. And it was looked at as in, is this really effective? Like, you know, sports moved on the property, the real estate around sports organization as, as everyone's craved to get more real estate has gone up in significantly in value so their assets have gone up right maybe we should move them into to corporate bodies in which the liability for each individual member is 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 restricted and they use insurance mechanisms and others to make sure that they've got the adequate protections in place that is a prime example where the law applies right as in you know the the, the it had moved on these are the same sort of decisions that many sports organizations have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis and then what we did was pull out the basic frameworks this is the the sort of the corporate entity you could this is the structures you could use this is why these ones would be effective for you whether you're turning over x amount of money or you know uh you've got, got a community aspect to you you, you know here's some information and we really kept it really basic and it just gave people an identification of the fact of oh Maybe we should eat, maybe we should be speaking to someone. Maybe we should. Maybe this actually is an issue for us because we've been worrying about this. But we didn't have the answers. So, in that sense, it's applicable. Secondly, 
you have to ask yourself if given the sports Scottish social license that it has, if they are not taking care of its essentially funnel, right, the schools, the people they're working in partnership with, the grassroots sports, then what are they doing? Really, you know, you have to look after. Well, you know, I, you know, I would hold that view, right? Because that's my—I <laughs> take that. I've got a strong leaning towards community anyway. But I think, I think most people in sport would agree they need to do that. Now we can argue over the mechanisms for that. One thing's for certain: if you have better legal frameworks, if you have, uh, which then lead to better governance, if you have better decision-making processes, you're much more investable from whether it's charitable funds that are going to donate, in government funds that are being donated, from sponsors' perspective, as a parent. You're going to be more likely to let your kid participate and encourage them to do so. It gives more confidence, and then people can be more effective in their roles. So I think in that, in you know, because they know they've got everything in place, all the processes in place. So I think even on a domestic level, um, at a grassroots level, is super important. But also, this is where the dialogue point comes in. A friend of mine was, if this is a relevant anecdote, a friend of mine was a safeguarding officer for an amateur football club. He's um, not a lawyer, but he's very well versed on legal issues. And he said he felt totally inadequate to deal with some of the issues that are there. Well, the FA have got fantastic processes in place for safeguarding now. It's got great amounts of information. That 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 concern needs to be fed back up into the organisation so they can then look at the regulations, look at what else they're doing and tweak it so that person doesn't feel so um, out of their depth and they know where to turn. So you can have all the great law and, and regulations and processes in place, but if the end user doesn't understand, if the if the citizen, if the individual does not understand how to apply it, then uh, it's going to cause problems. So it's an iterative process as well. Thanks, Sean. I wonder if there's um, one further dimension of, of sports law that we might explore, and that's the relationship between um, the media and uh, law. To what extent does the you know the the rise and you know, the globalization of sport has been hand in hand with you know, technological development developments and sports you know increasingly symbiotic relationship with the media? How has that has that been sort of the main focus? Many will think about the sort of legal contracts and uh, you know, vast amounts of money that are attracted through you know media deals. Is there something particular around the relationship with the media? Do you think? Well, um, so so where does sport get its money from? From media, mainly. Um, most places, unless, for example, I was speaking to someone yesterday in China, Chinese football is mainly government. So with the coronavirus situation, for example, they could just lock things down really quickly, didn't have to worry about the, the media rights issues, about you know when they can broadcast it again, because then they weren't reliant on the funds. But for most parts of the world, uh, for most developed sports, they're relying on, on you know, the big sports, anyway, relying on media. The smaller you get, you know the, the the organizations are paying the media to broadcast what they do right they'll have to put you know they'll maybe have a deal with sky or bt for example in which sky or bt agree to pay the production costs and then they put it on there but they don't get any money for, for the distribution they're just trying to create uh, more eyeballs let's say to for generate value for their sponsors uh, and to increase uh you know fan engagement and depending on the organization participation uh but be clear that you know sport has evolved dramatically because of the money for media rights and why did the interesting point there from a legal perspective is why did sports media rights become so valuable well in part it was because the telecoms companies needed something to offer that was going to attract people um to their services so they often bundled them together and they were subject to uh, a lot of competition law issues essentially they were they were abusing the dominant position in the telecoms market 
or it was argued, I should say, that they were that they were um, abusing their position as, as telecom companies in order to um, uh, secure their position. They decided to to, to to broadcast sport. Obviously, here domestically, we had Sky, um, and then Sky, when they got big enough, started to go into telecoms themselves, right? Which was which was really interesting. So they used it to as a means to attract enough customers, and then they could start going to telecoms. So. That relationship is really interesting. And the other relationship, which is one to watch, uh, both from a diplomatic perspective, from a legal perspective, is the data side. Now you're seeing, obviously, we've been heavily reliant on gambling revenue anyway. Um, but this whole thing around data and, and the selling of data is ideal for gambling. In the US, they're opening that up. That relationship between gambling, given the negative social impact that gambling can have, if it's uh, unchecked, as we're seeing in the UK, um, can be dramatic how that shapes sport and the narrative around sport i think is going to be really really interesting because what you're seeing is as we saw with the fa cup with it being streamed it's some games being streamed exclusively on i think it was was it bet 365 i think that or betfair who had the, the the rights to that um that quickly got changed uh because they were compelling people to place bets or to sign up to set jerry accounts to watch that and they felt that that wasn't right. So they, they removed the exclusivity for that betting company to have that. So they're the sort of dialogues. You know, everyone, unfortunately, there's only a few in, in really, to be truthful, uh, from a commercial aspect, there's only a few major winners in sport. Most people aren't making much money in sport. You, you might read the numbers and it looks all very glamorous. There's not many of them. Right? You only have to look at NFL players and look at how much they're paid. Look at football players. How, you know, the average football player in the world, I think, according to FIFA Pro, earns something like 50,000 euros a month, maybe less than that, 25,000, something, something, it's way below 50 anyway, I think, thousand euros a month, oh, sorry, a year. Um, you know, once you take out the big the big payments, of the big players, you know, there's not as much money. Yeah, 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 it doesn't average out, right? You've got the big, big winners, then you've got everyone else. So everyone's vying to be this big winner. So you've got the Premier League, then you've got everyone else. Basically, that's yeah. Their 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 revenues are, are much lower in terms of media rights. So everyone's vying for that. Um, you know, same if you look at you know we could talk about esports. If you look at esports, there's there's loads of money purportedly going around, and there's, there's you know League of Legends have got their their partnership model in which you have to have twenty million to, to to buy into that initially. But all those people are investing so heavily to try to make it work as a commercial model. Then none of them are really making any money. And it's not to say they're not paying out staff and they're growing, but it's a very long-term play and they haven't yet commercialized the media rights, which obviously may change given the, the current situation. But it doesn't mean it's not um, a functioning sector and it's not exciting. It is, but you know, it's very difficult. And I can't tell you which Spanish football club, but one of the top Spanish football clubs, as an example, they have their own TV channel and they cost them around 10 million a year to have that TV channel. That's they're not making any money for it, they're making a 10 million pound loss because obviously their rights go as a collective when they sell the, the La Liga media rights. So they don't have rights to their games. They have the rights to all the, the, the background stuff. Um, are people going to pay for that? Well, uh, that's questionable. So that's another piece of advice. When you're when you're looking at the sports industry, I would say that it's still a very bullish market, and that people talk, uh, get very excited. And particularly on the, the commercial side, there's a lot of um, you normally have to half the numbers you see, whether it's around player transfers or um, media rights deals, because they're normally they've tied up every single bonus that someone could possibly get, and that gives you the top figure. But in reality, it's, it's normally substantially below the figure that's purported. Right. Well, I, well, 
Sure. We could go on, but I wanted to just draw you back, and I'm going to sort of put a pin you against the wall, so to speak. So, give me sports law in thirty seconds. Sports law in thirty seconds. Yeah. What is it? It's the law as applied to the law as applied to sport, and 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 is the currently anyway is the it's the law as applied to sport, and. That's, that's that's pretty much that's how I say it. It's just the law is applied to sport, and then we can get into the and then we could get into the argument about whether there is a a specificity of sport or not. I don't really really think it matters. I think, or even better, I say, what is sports law? It's the role that lawyers play within the sports sector. I think that because that's going to evolve over the years, and I think that's more true. That'll be true today, and it'll be true tomorrow. You see what I mean? It'll be true in ten years, twenty years time. Whereas any other sort of, um, in in my view. Uh, my humble view, any other analysis uh, could be outdated quite quickly. Yeah, and it obviously, yeah, and I'll, I'll caveat this. I caveat this with the fact that that it, it depends on your worldview. If you're a disputes lawyer, if you're someone like Michael Belloff QC, then you have a, a different perspective, and and uh, I go, you know, you have to almost respect, and I do respect Michael Belloff's uh, perspective on things, and so. It's not to be dismissive of that. It's just that I think, particularly for non-lawyers, um, it's more helpful to frame it as what do lawyers do currently in the sports sector and what will they do in the future? Yeah, okay. Well, let's see. Uh, that that will be interesting to play out and I look forward to you know many more conversations with you as we uh, you know make progress on that front. Sean, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Pleasure. Let's do it again. Take care. Cheers. How's that, Fred? Okay. Yeah. Was I okay? Was that good enough for you? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I answered the questions or not. I was like a bit con- yeah, concerned. Yeah, we'll, we'll, Fred will do his magic and take out some of my ums and ahs um, and we'll go <laughs> with you and we can go from, from there. That sounds good, Fred. Yeah, yeah, because they're quite complex. They're quite complex questions. I was trying to keep it as simple as possible. <laughs> I was like, okay, that, that's quite a... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cool. Okay. Thank that, you, Fred. That, thanks, Simon. As I said, the problem, the problem is that, that some of the questions you asked me, Simon, are like are like uh, um, in the sports law world, in the legal world.